You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner, Ten Lectures, entitled Christ and the Human Soul. It's made up of four parts, and we're in the third part, uh, entitled Christ and the Human Soul. The, the fourth and last lecture of that subsection, I have numbered it as Lecture 9, in, in keeping it that way. These are translated by Agnes Schneeberg de Stur. This was giving in Neurköping on July 16, 1914. Humanity is continuously in need of truths that cannot at any given time be fully comprehended. Taking in truths does not mean something only for our cognition, for our knowledge. Truths themselves actually contain life forces. By permeating ourselves with truth, we permeate our soul nature with an element coming from the cosmic world, just as we must permeate our physical nature with air taken from outside so that we can live. For this reason, deep truths are expressed in the great religious writings, but in such a way that people will often not understand these truths in their real inner meaning until much, much later. The New Testament has been written down. The New Testament stands there as a record, spread out, one might say, for humanity. But it will require the whole of the earth's evolution to run its course before this New Testament will be fully understood. In the future, people will acquire much knowledge of the external world, and they will acquire much knowledge even of the spiritual world, and all of it will contribute to an understanding of the New Testament if it is viewed in the right light. The understanding comes about gradually. The New Testament is written in a simple form so that it can be absorbed and then gradually be understood at a later time. Permeating ourselves with the truth contained in the New Testament is not without significance, even if we cannot yet understand this truth in its innermost depths. Later on, truth becomes a cognition force, but it is already a life force when it is absorbed in, one could say, a more or less childlike form. And if the questions we began to consider yesterday are to be understood in the sense in which they are communicated in the New Testament, then we need a knowledge that goes ever deeper, a growing insight into the spiritual world and its secrets. If we want to carry yesterday's considerations further, then it will be necessary to look a little bit deeper into some esoteric mysteries, for they can lead us to a broader understanding of the question, the enigma of guilt and sin, and can then, precisely from this point of view, throw more light on the relation of Christ to the human soul. There is above all one viewpoint that we have often encountered in the course of our spiritual scientific work, a viewpoint that can be clothed, as we have done before, in the form of a question, why did Christ die in a human body? It is a question that actually expresses the fundamental riddle of the mystery of Golgotha. Why did Christ die? Why did a God die in a human body? 
The God died because as a consequence of the evolution of the world, it became necessary that a God would be able to enter into an earthly human being, that a God of the highest worlds could become the leader of earth evolution. In order for this to occur, Christ had to become, quote, akin to death, close quote, German tot verwandt, akin to death. One would hope that human souls develop a deep, deep understanding of this expression. As human beings, we generally encounter death only when we see another person die or in other phenomena related to death that can be found in the world, or also in the certainty that we ourselves must pass through the gate of death when our present incarnation will have come to an end. But this is really only the external aspect of death. Death is present in quite a different form in the world in which we live, and it is important to accentuate this. Let us take our start from an ordinary, everyday phenomenon. We breathe in air and we breathe it out again. But within us, the air undergoes a change. When the air is exhaled, it is dead air. As exhaled air, it cannot be breathed again, for exhaled air is death-like. I am pointing this out so that you may understand what is expressed in the esoteric saying, quote, by entering into a human being, the air dies. It truly is a fact that the living element in the air dies when it enters into a human being. With every breath, death infiltrates the air, because a human being is breathing. That, however, is only one phenomenon. A ray of light, too, must die in a similar manner when it penetrates our eye, E-Y-E, and we would not receive anything from the light in this world if our eye did not defy, resist the ray of light, just as our lungs defy the air. Any light entering into our eye dies in our eye, and it is because of the lights dying in our eye that we see. Thus the living element in the light dies as it enters our eye. The ray of light is killed in the eye. We kill it so that we may have what our eyes perceive. In this way we are filled with much that has to die in us so that we may have our earthly consciousness. In its bodily aspect we kill the air and we also kill the rays of light that penetrate us. Therefore we kill in many different respects. With the help of spiritual science we distinguish four substance elements earth, water, air and warmth. Then we come to the realm of the light ether where we speak of warmth ether, of light ether, and it is as far up as the light ether that we kill what enters into us. We slay it continually so that we may have our earthly consciousness. But there is something we cannot kill as a consequence of our living on the earth. We know that above the light ether there is the so-called chemical ether, and above that, the life ether. These are the two kinds of ether that we cannot kill. But because of this, these two kinds of ether are not really part of us. If we were able to kill the chemical ether as well, then the sound waves of the harmony of the spheres would sound perpetually into our physical body. And we would, with our physical life, continually destroy these waves within us. And if we were able to kill the life ether too, 
then we would destroy and continuously kill within ourselves the cosmic life that streams down to the earth. We have been given a substitute in earthly sound, but this cannot be compared with what we would hear if it were possible at all for the chemical ether to be heard by us as physical human beings. For physical sound is a product of the air and is not spiritual sound. It is only a substitute for the spiritual sound. When the Luciferic temptation occurred, the progressive gods were obliged to place human beings in a domain where death dwells in the physical body, from the light ether downward. But at that time the progressive gods said, and these words are recorded in the Bible, quote, Man has come to know the distinction between good and evil, but life he must not have. Of the tree of life he shall not eat. Close quote. And in the sense of esoteric science, it is possible to add something to this statement. The continuation of the sentence, quote, Of the tree of life he shall not eat, close quote, would then be, quote, And the spirit of matter he shall not hear. Close quote. Of the tree of life man shall not eat, and the spirit of matter he shall not hear. These are the regions that were closed off to human beings. And it was only through a specific procedure implemented in the old mysteries, when those who were to be initiated were outside the body and were permitted to have a prescient vision of the Christ, that the sounds of the music of the spheres and the cosmic life pulsating through the universe were also disclosed to them. Hence the old philosophers spoke of the music of the spheres. In drawing attention to this, we are at the same time pointing to those regions from which the Christ came to us at the time of the baptism in the Jordan by John. From where did Christ come? He came from those regions that had been closed to human beings as a consequence of the Luciferic temptation from the region of the music of the spheres and from the region of cosmic life. It had been necessary for human beings to forget these regions during the beginning stages of earth evolution because of the Luciferic temptation. At the baptism in the Jordan by John, Christ entered into a human body, and what permeated this human body was the spiritual essence of the harmony of the spheres, the spiritual essence of the cosmic life. In other words, that which still belonged to the human soul during its first stages on earth, but from which it had to be banned as a consequence of the Luciferic temptation. And it is in this sense, too, that the human being is akin to spirit. As a being of soul, the human being actually belongs to the region of the music of the spheres and to the region of the word, of the living cosmic ether. But the human being had been cast out from these regions. These were to be restored to him so that he might gradually be permeated again by that from which he had been banned. This is why, also from the perspective of spiritual science, we are so deeply touched by the words of John's Gospel. In the primal beginning, when the human being had not yet been subject to temptation, was the Logos. The human being belonged to the Logos. The Logos was with God, and the human being was with the Logos, with God. And through the baptism in the Jordan by John, 
the Logos entered into human evolution. He became human. Here we have the connection, the all-important connection. Let us leave this truth as it stands there for now and try to approach the question from another side. Life in all its aspects shows itself to us only from the external side. If life did not show itself merely from the external side, then we would be aware at all times how we absorb the corpse of the light into our eye when we see. What was it that the Christ had to take upon himself to make it possible for Paul's saying, not I, but Christ in me, to be fulfilled? It had to become possible that Christ could permeate the essential nature of the human being, but human essential nature is filled with what is slain in earth existence through this essential nature, from the light ether, which dies in the human eye, downward. The essential nature of the human being is filled with death, and what lives in the two highest kinds of ether was the only thing withdrawn from it, so that human essential nature would not be infused with their deaths as well. In order for Christ to be able to dwell in us, he had to become akin to death, akin to death and akin to everything that is spread out in the world, everything from the light down to the depths of materiality. It had to become possible for Christ to enter into that which we carry within us as the corpse of the light, the corpse of the warmth, the corpse of the air, and so on. It was only because he was able to become akin to death that he could become akin to human essential nature. And we must feel in our souls that the God had to die in order to be able to permeate us human beings so that we who had taken on death as a consequence of the Luciferic temptation might be able to say Christ in us. Many other things are hidden for human beings, hidden behind sense-perceptible existence. We look at the plant world. We see how the light of the sun conjures forth the plants from the soil. Science teaches us that light is necessary for the growth of plants, but that is only one half of the truth. Someone looking at the plants with clairvoyant perception sees living spiritual elements rising up from them. The light dips down into the plants and rises up again from them as a living spiritual element. The light goes down into the plants in order to be transformed in them and then be born again as a living spiritual element. In the case of the animals, it is the chemical ether that enters into them. This chemical ether is not perceptible to human beings. If they could perceive it, it would spiritually sound forth to them. The animals transform this ether into water spirits. The plants transform the light into air spirits, and the animals transform the spiritual element that is working in the chemical ether into water spirits. And human beings transform that which lives in the cosmic ether, the life ether, which brings it about that we can live at all, and which is precluded from being killed in us, into earth spirits. Yes, we transform it into earth spirits. In a course of lectures given in Karlsruhe, I spoke of the human phantom. There is not enough time to outline the connecting threads between what is to be said here about the human phantom and what was said then. 
but such connecting threads do exist, and you will perhaps find them for yourselves when you compare what was said on either occasion. Today I must present this subject from another side. There is a spiritual element being created continuously in human beings. What lives in human beings as life is continually going out into the world, as it were. Human beings spread an aura around them, an aura of rays. In doing so, they continually enrich the earthly spiritual element of the earth. And inasmuch as human beings transmit this all across and into the earth, the earth spirit element of the earth contains all the qualities, moral or otherwise, which each human being has acquired in life and carries inside him or herself. It is true, absolutely true, that to someone with clairvoyant perception, it is apparent how human beings send out their moral, intellectual and aesthetic aura into the world and how this aura continues to live as earth spirit in the spirituality of the earth. Just as a comet draws its tail through the cosmos, so do we draw through the whole of earthly life what we dispense as spiritual aura, what is held together phantom-like during our lifetime, but at the same time emits our moral and intellectual soul qualities out into the world. Life is very complicated, and this too is a phenomenon of life. When in our spiritual research we go back to the times before the mystery of Golgotha, we find that people simply radiated this phantom-like entity, which contained their moral qualities, out into the outer world, into the external spiritual aura of the earth. But humanity continued to develop in the course of earth existence, and it was at the time when the mystery of Golgotha took place, that a certain stage of this development had been reached, precisely with respect to this phantom-like entity emitted by human beings. One could say that in earlier times this phantom-like entity was much more fleeting, that, by the time of the mystery of Golgotha, it had become denser, had assumed more form, and that something had been added as a fundamental characteristic to this phantom-like entity, namely the death aspect that human beings absorb into themselves by killing the light entering the eye, the air entering the lungs, and so on, as I have explained. These earth-spirit-like entities, which radiate from human beings, are like a stillborn spirit child, because human beings impart their death aspect to them. If Christ had not come to the earth, let us try to picture this. Then, during the sojourn of their souls in earthly bodies, human beings would have continuously rayed out entities that would have had death imprinted into them, and moral qualities would have been bound up with this death. The moral qualities of human beings that were spoken of yesterday, objective guilt and objective sin, would have been in it they would have lain within it. Suppose that the Christ had not come. What would have happened in the evolution of the earth? Starting from the time during which the mystery of Golgotha would otherwise have taken place, human beings would have spiritually created dense formations with death imprinted into them. And these dense formations 
would have become the very elements that were meant to pass with the earth over to the Jupiter stage. Humanity would have imparted death to the earth. A dead earth would have given birth to a dead Jupiter. It would have had to be like this because if the mystery of Golgotha had not come to pass, then it would not have been possible for human beings to permeate what is radiating out from them with the essence of the music of the spheres and the essence of cosmic life. These essences would not have been there. They would not have flowed into what human beings are emitting. But Christ brought these essences with the mystery of Golgotha. And inasmuch as the words, not I, but Christ in me, are fulfilled through our taking the Christ into ourselves, and inasmuch as we are developing an inner relationship with Him, life is injected into what rays out from us, into what would otherwise be dead. Because we bear death within us, the living Christ has to permeate us so that He may give life to what we leave behind as spiritual earth being. What detaches itself from us as objective guilt, as objective sin, and is not carried further in our karma, this is what Christ, the living Logos, permeates and enlivens. And as He gives it life, a living earth will evolve into a living Jupiter. This is the impact of the mystery of Golgotha. The soul can receive Christ into itself by forming the following thoughts. It can recognize that there was once a time when human beings were within the bosom of the Divine Logos, but that they had to succumb to the temptation of Lucifer. They took death into themselves, and with death a seed passed over into them that would have caused a dead earth to give birth to a dead Jupiter. What remained behind is what the human soul before the temptation, had been destined to receive for its earth existence. With Christ it entered again into human earth existence. And when we take the Christ into ourselves, such that we feel permeated with Christ, we can say to ourselves, quote, What the gods had allotted to me before the Luciferic temptation, what had to remain behind in the cosmic universe, as a result of the temptation by Lucifer, this is what enters into my soul together with the Christ. The soul only becomes whole again by taking the Christ into itself. Only then am I a complete soul again. Only then am I again all that the gods intended me to be from the primordial beginning of the earth. Close quote. What we are really asking is, Am I truly a soul without Christ? One feels that it is only through Christ that one becomes the soul that one was meant to be in accordance with the divine plan. This is the wonderful feeling of home that souls can have with Christ. For it was from the primal cosmic home of the soul that the Christ descended in order to give back to the human soul that which had to be lost on earth as a result of the temptation by Lucifer. Christ leads the soul upward again to its primordial home, the home allotted to it by the gods. 
That is the joy and the blessedness of really experiencing Christ in the human soul. It was this that gave such bliss to certain Christian mystics in the Middle Ages. Even though much of what they have written may, in and of itself, have been envisioned too much from a sensory perspective, the underlying principle was spiritual. Christian mystics, such as those who were followers of Bernard of Clairvaux and others, experienced the human soul as a bride who had lost her bridegroom at the primordial beginning of the earth. And when Christ entered into their souls, filling them with life and soul and spirit, they experienced Christ as the sole bridegroom who united himself with the soul, the bridegroom whom they had lost in the primordial home of the soul, when it had forsaken this home, in order through Lucifer to follow the path of freedom, to follow the path of distinguishing between good and evil. If the human soul really lives in Christ, if it feels the Christ as the living being who flowed from the death on Golgotha out into the spiritual atmosphere of the earth, and who can flow into the soul, then it actually feels itself inwardly enlivened through the Christ. Then the soul feels a transition from a state of death into life. Because we must, until far into a remote future, live out our earthly existence in human bodies, it is not possible for us to hear the music of the spheres directly or have a direct experience of the cosmic life within ourselves. But we can experience what flows out from Christ and thus can receive, taking its place as it were, what would otherwise come to us from the music of the spheres and the cosmic life. In earlier times Pythagoras had spoken of the music of the spheres. Why was he able to do this? Pythagoras was an initiate of the ancient mysteries. He had undergone the initiation process during which the soul leaves the body. When his soul was outside the body, he could be transported into the spiritual worlds. There he saw the Christ, who was to come to earth only at a later time. Since the mystery of Golgotha, it is not possible for human beings to speak of the music of the spheres as Pythagoras spoke of it, but we can speak of it in another way, even if we are not living with our soul outside of the body. As an initiate, one would be able to speak even today as Pythagoras did. But as ordinary inhabitants of the earth, living in a physical body, we can speak of the music of the spheres and of the cosmic life only when we experience in our soul, not I, but Christ in me. For that is what lived in the music of the spheres, and that is what lived in the cosmic life. But we must really go through this process, too, within ourselves. We must really receive the Christ into our souls. Suppose we were to resist this. Suppose we did not wish to take up Christ into our souls. Then we would come to the end of the earth phase and would be confronted there with a spirit form that would then have been formed out of the earth spirits developing in the course of human evolution. This nebulous spirit form, which would then have been formed out of the earth, would contain all the phantom-like beings that rayed forth from us in former incarnations. 
they would all be in it. What would be there would be a dead earth, and it would pass, dead, over into Jupiter. At the end of the earth phase, it may be that we have resolved our karma and blotted it out completely. In other words, we may subjectively have taken ownership of all the errors we committed by making amends for them, and we may have become whole again in our soul being, in our I. But the sin and guilt would objectively be present in what remains. This is an absolute truth, because we do not live only for ourselves. We do not live so that by balancing our karma we may become egotistically more perfect. We live for the world, and at the end of time the remnants of our earthly incarnations will stand there like a mighty tableau if we have not taken into us the living Christ. For if we connect what was said yesterday with what is being said today, and it is really the same only seen from two sides, then we see how Christ takes upon himself the guilt and sin of earthly humanity insofar as these are objective guilt and sin. And if we have inwardly taken up this, not I, but Christ in me, the Christ in us, then he takes upon himself what rays out from us, and the remnants of our incarnations will stand there enlivened by Christ, permeated by his life and irradiated by Christ. Truly, our incarnations will stand there. That is to say, the remnants of our incarnations will stand there, and taken as a whole, what becomes of them? Because Christ unites them all, Christ who belongs to the whole of humanity in the present and in the future, all of these remains of single incarnations are compressed together. Every human soul lives through successive incarnations. Let us take one incarnation. Certain remnants remain, as we have described. Take the next incarnation. Certain remnants remain, as described. Take subsequent incarnations. Certain remnants remain, and so on, until the end of earthly times. Each single incarnation leaves its remains up until the end of the earth. If these relics are permeated by Christ, then they become pressed together. Whenever something rarefied is compressed, it becomes dense. Spirit also becomes dense and our collective earth incarnations are thus united into one spirit body. This body is ours. We need it as we are continuing our evolution toward Jupiter, because it will be the starting point of our bodily incarnation on Jupiter. At the end of the earth phase, we shall stand there with our soul, and with whatever stage our karma may have reached. We shall stand there before our earthly remnants, which were gathered together by Christ, and we shall have to unite with them in order to pass over with them to Jupiter. We shall rise again in a body, in an earthly body that has been condensed out of the individual incarnations. Truly, my dear friends, with a profoundly moved heart I speak these words, quote, We shall rise again in a body. Close quote. Young people today, sixteen and even younger, are beginning to insist on professing their own belief systems and are talking of, quote, luckily having outgrown such nonsense as the resurrection of the body, close quote. Those, on the other hand, who seek to deepen their esoteric knowledge of the world's mysteries 
are gradually developing an understanding of what human beings have been told, because, as I explained at the beginning of the lecture, these things must first be put into words so that people can grasp them as life truths and comprehend them later. The resurrection of bodies is a reality, but our soul must come to feel that it wants to rise again in the face of the earthly remnants that have been gathered together by Christ, in the face of the spiritual body that is imbued with Christ. This is what our soul must learn to understand. For suppose that because of our not having received the living Christ into ourselves, we would not be able to approach this earthly body with its sin and its guilt and unite with it. If we had rejected the Christ, then at the end of the earth phase the remnants of our various incarnations would be standing there scattered. They would have remained and would not have been gathered together by the Christ who spiritualizes the whole of humanity through and through. We would then at the end of the earth phase be standing there as souls who are bound to the earth, bound to that part of the earth which remains behind, dead, in our remnants. And even though our souls would be free in spirit, in an egotistic sense, we would be unable to approach our bodily remnants. Such souls are the spoils of Lucifer, for he strives to thwart the true goal of the earth. He tries to prevent souls from reaching their earth goal, to hold them back in the spiritual world. And Lucifer will send over into the Jupiter evolution what has remained of the scattered earth remnants as a dead entrapment of Jupiter, which will then not, as moon, detach from Jupiter, but rather remain in Jupiter and continually be pushing out these earth remnants. And on Jupiter these earth remnants will have to be enlivened by the souls from above as a new species of souls. And now please recall what I had told you some years ago, that humanity on Jupiter will divide into one race whose souls have attained their earth goal and will have attained the goal of Jupiter, and a race whose souls will form a middle kingdom between the human kingdom and the animal kingdom on Jupiter. These latter ones are souls that will be present in a Luciferic way, that is, spiritually only. They will have their body below, and this body will be a defined expression of their whole inner soul being, but they will be able to direct it only from outside. There will be two races, the good and the bad, on Jupiter, and they will be very different from one another. This was discussed a number of years ago. Today we shall look at it in more depth. The Jupiter existence will be followed by a Venus existence, and again there will be a balancing adjustment brought about through the further evolution of the Christ. But it is precisely on Jupiter that human beings will come to see what it means to want to strive only for perfection in one's own eye and not to make the whole earth one's concern. This is something human beings will have to experience throughout the whole course of the Jupiter cycle, inasmuch as all the things we have not permeated with Christ during our earthly existence can then appear before our spiritual sight. Bringing together all that has been said, 
Let us consider from this point of view the words of Christ with which he sent his disciples out into the world to proclaim his name and to forgive sins in his name. Why forgive sins in his name? Because this forgiving of sins is connected with his name. Because sins can be erased and transformed into living life only if Christ can be united with our earth remnants. If during our earth existence he had already been within us in the sense of the Pauline saying, not I, but Christ in me. And if religious denominations anywhere associate themselves in their outer observances with this saying of Christ in order to make souls aware again and again of everything that is connected with Christ, then we must recognize this deeper meaning in there as well. And if in any religious denomination one of its representatives speaks of the forgiveness of sins as though commissioned by Christ, then it means nothing less than that this person with these words about the forgiveness of sins forms a connection with the forgiveness of sins through Christ and interprets this to a soul in need of comfort by saying, quote, I have seen that you have developed a living relationship to Christ. You are uniting that which is objective sin and guilt and which must enter as objective sin and guilt into your earth remnants with everything that Christ is to you. It is because I have recognized that you have permeated yourself with Christ that I am permitted to say to you, your sins are forgiven. Such words always imply, although unspoken, that the individual who, in any religious denomination, speaks of the forgiveness of sins, is convinced that the person in question has formed a connection with Christ and wants to bear Christ in heart and soul. Accordingly, such an individual is permitted to give comfort when the other person, conscious of guilt, comes to him or her. Quote, Christ will forgive you, and I am permitted to say to you that in his name your sins are forgiven. Close quote. In this way, a beautiful connection is established with the one who is the only forgiver of sins, because he is the bearer of sins, because he is the being who gives life to human earth remnants. When those who want to serve him can give comfort with the words, quote, your sins are forgiven, close quote, to those souls who have shown that in their inner being they feel connected with Christ. For it is in effect a renewed affirmation of the soul's relationship to Christ when it realizes, quote, I have understood my guilt and sin in such a way that I can rightfully be told that Christ takes them upon himself, that he works through them with his being, close quote. If such words expressing the forgiveness of sins are to be words of truth, then they must carry an undertone which, at the very least, reminds the person who has sinned and has become guilty of this bond with Christ, even if he or she is not always forming this bond anew. For there must be an inner bond between the soul and Christ, a bond so inwardly intense that the soul cannot renew its awareness of it often enough. And because Christ is intimately connected with the objective sin and the objective guilt of the human soul, the soul can best remind itself in daily life of its relationship to Christ by remembering precisely 
at the moment of the forgiveness of sins and then again and again, the presence of the cosmic Christ in earth existence. Those who take up spiritual science in the right spirit and make it their own, not merely in an external sense, but in the real spirit, can definitely also become their own confessors. It is quite certain that through spiritual science they can gradually learn to know Christ so intimately and feel themselves so closely connected with Him that they can directly experience His spiritual presence. And inasmuch as they affirm Him anew as the cosmic principle, they will be able to direct their confession to Him in spirit and in silent meditation ask from Him the forgiveness of sins. But as long as human beings have not yet permeated themselves with spiritual science in this deep spiritual sense, we must look with understanding at what is administered as an external token, one could say, in the various religions of the world as, quote, the forgiveness of sins, close quote. People will become spiritually freer and freer, and inasmuch as they become freer, their connection with Christ will become more and more a direct experience. And there must be tolerance, just as those who believe that they have inwardly embraced the spirit of the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ, in such depth that they can have a direct dialogue with the Christ, just as they must look with understanding upon those who need the positive observances of a faith confession and a minister of Christ to give them comfort with the words, your sins are forgiven, so must there also be tolerance on the part of those who see that there are people who can achieve this independently. To be sure, all this can only be an ideal in earthly life, but those dedicated to anthroposophy can at least strive toward such an ideal. I have spoken to you of spiritual mysteries that are uncovered and that make it possible for people also those who have already absorbed much of anthroposophy, to develop deeper insights into the whole nature of our human existence. I have spoken to you of the overcoming of human egoism and of certain things we must recognize before we can have a right understanding of karma. I have spoken to you of the human being insofar as he is not merely an I-being but belongs to the whole earth existence and is summoned to contribute toward attaining the divine aim of the earth. Christ did not just come into the world and go through the mystery of Golgotha so that he might be something to each one of us in our egoism. It would be terrible to imagine that Christ would be thought of as though Paul's words, not I but Christ in me, were only meant to encourage a higher egoism. Christ died for the whole of humanity for earthly humanity. Christ became the central spirit of the earth who has to save, for the sake of the earth, everything earthly spiritual that flows out from human beings. Nowadays one can read theological works and those who have done so can corroborate what I say here which state that certain theologians of the 19th and 20th centuries have at long last disposed of the popular medieval belief that Christ came to earth in order to wrest the earth away from the devil, to wrest the earth away from Lucifer. Even within modern theology, there is an enlightened materialism, 
which will, however, not recognize itself as such, but actually imagines itself to be especially enlightened by saying that in the dark Middle Ages people believed that Christ had to come to the world because he had to wrest the earth away from the devil. But the true enlightenment actually leads us back to this simple, popular belief of the people. For everything on the earth that is not set free by Christ belongs to Lucifer. And all that is human in us, all that goes beyond what is merely confined to our I, capital, all this will be ennobled and be made fruitful for the whole of humanity when it is permeated with Christ. And inasmuch as I am standing before you here at the end of this series of lectures, I would not want to omit speaking a few more words to each individual soul, to all of you who have gathered here. Hope and confidence in the future of our work can dwell in our hearts because we have endeavored from the very beginning to permeate what we had to say with the will of Christ. And it is out of this hope and confidence that we may say that our teaching itself is what Christ wants to say to us, fulfilling his words, quote, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, close quote, Matthew 28, 20. We have only sought to give attention to what comes from him and what he has kindled within us in accordance with his promise. This we want to take into our souls as our spiritual science. It is not because we feel our spiritual science to be interfused with any sort of Christian dogmatism that we regard it as Christian, but because having imbued it with Christ, we look upon it as a revelation of the Christ in ourselves. This is also why I am convinced that what takes root as true spiritual science in those souls who, together with us, want to receive our Christ-filled spiritual science will become fruitful for the whole of humanity, and especially for those who are meant to receive these fruits. Much of what is good, spiritually good, in our movement, and this is how it appears to clairvoyant observation, stems from those who, together with us, have taken our Christ-imbued spiritual science into themselves, and then, having passed through the gate of death, send back down to us the fruits of this Christ-permeated spiritual science. What is being sent down to us from the spiritual worlds by those who have absorbed the Christ-imbued spiritual science, this is already living in us, for they do not hold on to it for the sake of perfecting themselves within their own karmic stream. They can let it stream into those souls who want to receive it. Comfort and hope for our spiritual science sprout up for us from the knowledge that our so-called dead are also working with us. In the second lecture, we spoke about these things in a broader context. But today, as we have come to the close of this lecture cycle, I would like to add a personal word. While I have been speaking to this Norkirping branch of our society, I could not help but feel the continued spiritual presence of a person who was so deeply connected with our work here in Norkirping. The spirit of Frau Danielson looks down like a good angel upon everything this branch aspires to do. Hers also was a Christian spirit, in the sense described, and the souls who knew her will never feel themselves separated from her. 
May that spirit continue to hold sway over this branch as guardian spirit. It will surely do so most willingly if the souls working in this branch receive it. With these words spoken from the depths of my heart, I close these lectures, and I hope that we shall continue to work together on the spiritual path we have embraced. The end of Lecture 9